0: Turn to Psalm 91, if you will, and we're going to uh, look at these 16 verses where God shows us that he is our refuge and our fortress. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust, for he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence he will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you will find refuge his faithfulness is a shield and buckler you will not fear the terror of the night nor the arrow that flies by day nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness nor the destruction that wastes at noonday a thousand may fall at your side 10000 at your right hand But it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone, You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. This is God's blessed word. Let us pray. Lord, we are a people who are prone to fears. And yet, Lord, you show us your salvation and you satisfy us in it. And when we say it, Lord, we see that salvation is your salvation. So ultimately, we find our fears assuaged and our satisfaction in you. And so, Lord, deliver us from our fears, deliver us in the midst of our fears by walking with us, that we might see, Lord, that even though this world is a dangerous place, a fearful place, we have nothing to fear if we call upon your name, if we trust in you, and we hold on to you with all of our hearts. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm glad that when I asked the kids of the particular things that they were afraid of that there was one that they didn't mention because that would have spoiled my whole introduction. So, recently, like just in the last couple of weeks, there was a video clip that went viral on the internet. As a bush airplane was preparing to land and you can imagine landing gear down, got it, we're going we're going here it is, here it is. The pilots in the cockpit Preoccupied with the controls were laughing hysterically as an enormous spider ever so slowly lowered itself from above and then down between the legs of the two co-pilots right as the plane touched down on the earth you should see it <laughs> they're laughing hysterically and us Americans are going how in the world can you laugh in such a horrible ter- terrifying situation they've even made movies about this sort of thing arachnophobia kids when you get old enough to see John Goodman march into the house and kill all the millions and millions of spiders there in the house and arachnophobia is like a serious problem in Australia because they have the biggest meanest largest population of spiders that I've ever seen but for some Aussies who happily coexist down uh, down under with our eight-legged friends it's a matter of perspective <laughs> They can laugh hysterically as this giant tarantula that we've been avoiding all of our lives in a while comes right down and lands in their laps. How in the world can you get to that place? Life is full of troubles that arise as threats on every side. If sickness doesn't kill you, or if evil people don't find you, or if giant spiders don't eat you alive, then will the devil finally get you? I mean these are the things that make us afraid. These are the things that go bump in the night when we're kids and when we grow up. Let's be honest. Life is dangerous. And when your strength fails, it can feel defeating, can't it? Yeah, you you think that you're 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 beyond this. You're you're a grown up. This shouldn't bother you anymore. And yet we're still afraid. And so we want to ask this question this morning as we come to Psalm 91. How can you overcome your fears while avoiding two different pitfalls? On the one hand, being naive and overconfident, brash in your sense of fearlessness. And on the other hand, being timid or even analytical in your over-carefulness. In uncertain times that threaten your sense of peace, how can you gain a kingdom perspective that sets you free just to live your life? even in the midst of troubles, that will not go away? That's the question that Psalm 91 answers for us this morning. It's going to teach us that the Lord, the Most High God, is a protective, secure, strong Savior to the one who loves him, delivering victoriously from the threats of enemies, from disease, and from every other trouble. And so what ought we to do with that information, with that truth, We ought to dwell in the secret shelter of God and then fearlessly hold fast to his name that you might be satisfied to see his salvation. This is the lesson of Psalm 91. And I want us to to remember where we're at in our our series here on uh, Psalms of the Kingdom. Last time, a couple of weeks ago, we looked at Psalm 90. Psalms 90 and 91 are introductory psalms to book four of the Psalter. And we've talked about how there are five books in the book of Psalms. Um, book four that we're now introducing is a collection that's about spiritual maturation. It's about spiritual maturity. You see, the, the context, in a sense, is God's people are in exile, and they're accepting, though, their hardships that are ordained by God, and they're growing in grace. They're now expressing hope and joy in God's good promises in the faces of life's many dangers and troils and snares. I encourage you to to flip through on your own time uh, book four of of the Psalms. They start in Psalm 90 and they go to about 106 or so and you can just look at the, the, the headings that your translation puts there and you can see that these are the kinds of lessons that would be comfortable to those who are in the midst of troubles but are beginning to have a different perspective on them. Even though this life is but a moment we saw in Psalm 90, God's kingdom benefits for this life and in the next life are in every way amazing grace. That's Psalm 91. And so after kingdom humility, which was a couple weeks ago in Psalm 90, we are finally ready for a dose of kingdom perspective. Kingdom perspective. And those are the three points that I want us to, uh, to look at in this particular passage. Confession of kingdom faith benefits of kingdom faith and confirmation of kingdom faith. Confession, the benefits, and the confirmation of kingdom faith. Let's look at just the first couple of verses because those encapsulate the first point, the, the confession of kingdom faith. And what we have here are two ingredients, if you will, for what you need to have kingdom faith, what you need to confess it. And the first one we find in verse one. This can kind of be read as the theme of the whole psalm from an objective perspective, from a, from a truth outside of you perspective. Are you following me? He who dwells will abide. You can, you can summarize it like that. He who dwells will abide. And it sounds like it's kind of a tautology. In other words, you're, you're kind of defining it with the same kind of words, dwelling and abiding. But there's a difference there. There's a nuance. Because we, when we live somewhere, it can be just a house, right? It's a place that we hang our hat. It's a place that we go home to at night. But there's a difference than an abiding in your house where you make it a home, right? It's not just an apartment. It's not just a place where your stuff is. It's now a place where your heart is. It's now a place where, where you live and move and have your being, if you will. So the point of Psalm 91 is that he who draws near can have an abiding peace in the Lord, who is that everlasting ancient shelter, as we looked at in Psalm 90. No matter the circumstances, so objectively speaking, that first ingredient that you need in terms of a solid, true, orthodox confession of faith is that if you draw near to God to abide in his shelter, and that word there is literally the secret place. I love that, the secret place. To make that secret place your dwelling place. Then you can find inner peace in all circumstances. The shadow of the Almighty, this, the, the second half of that verse, Uh, Shaddai. We have a psalm in our hymnal, uh, El Shaddai. uh, We haven't sung it here in a long, long time. But Shaddai is a Hebrew word that's an image of God's mountainous wilderness where the faithful go to find protection and shelter. You remember a number of years ago when uh, Barbara's brother Rick came and told us a little bit about what it meant to to look at uh, the Hebrew Bible from a Jewish Hebrew perspective and how we think of the wilderness as as a place where there's only like you know, mountain lions and snakes and giant spiders, and it's just fearful. It's a place of danger. Whereas in the Hebrew mindset, when you go into the wilderness, it has all those things that we're afraid of, but it's also a place where you go to find God. It's a place where the hustle and bustle of this world just fades off into the distance, where the, the traffic doesn't make noise anymore. And you're able to peacefully hear the babbling brook and you hear the singing of the birds and the rustle of the wind through the trees. And you can start to calm your heart and begin to listen for what God is seeking to teach you. The wilderness is a place where we go not only to to face our fears, but a place to go to meet God. The shadow of the Almighty, the Shaddai compares to that common biblical term, the shadow of your wings, which we see so often through the scriptures. I think in your sermon notes, if you picked one up off the table, there's a long list of Bible references. If you have a concordance, you can look up the shadow of your wings and you'll find that this is an extremely common image that God uses to say, this is where you find shelter. This is where you find refuge. This is where you find protection. Come over here under my pinions. And it's singular in the Bible. So it's almost as if God says, I got a big feather here. And you come and rest here And you'll find shelter. You'll find protection. You'll find security. You'll find a place where you won't be able to escape your fears, but you'll be comforted in the midst of your fears as God shelters you in his grand shadow. So if that's the objective truth of verse 1, verse 2 is more of the subjective ingredient that you need, the subjective trust in that objective confession of faith that we saw in verse 1. So verse 2 makes personal that objective truth of verse 1. Now, I want to ask you, do you see how it invites a believer to make a confession, a profession of personal trust in God by employing these two additional images, although they're related to the ones that we saw in the first verse? And those two images are a refuge and a fortress. A refuge and a fortress. Let's, let's take a look at those and just kind of unpack them in our minds just briefly here. First, a refuge. refuge is a place of security, uh, especially for non-combatants and one's family members. Uh, They're not the ones that are right on the the battle line, but this is the place where, for example, the Israelites said, we want to be able to take the land uh, in the Transjordan area, across the Jordan, east of the Jordan River, and we will follow our fellow Israelites into the land and conquer the, the promised land proper, in a sense, the place where the Canaanites live west of the Jordan. But before we go, please allow us to build shelters for our family and pens for our for our livestock, so that they can have a place of refuge and protection and shelter. This is what we mean when we talk about a refuge, and it corresponds with the shadow of the Most High in verse one. Now think about that—the shadow of the Most High. Sometimes we just kind of skate over that image, the Most High. Well. If you want to get away from danger, one way you can do it is rise above it, right? You can get to higher ground. Well, God, in a sense, is being pictured here as the one who is on the highest ground, the most high. In other words, with all the things down here that are, that are scary, you might think of the spiders crawling on the floor or the snakes slithering around, and one way to get out of there is that God lifts you up and puts you on a higher place. Now, the highest place is not Mount Everest, the highest place is the most high. It's God. God is the place where you find your ultimate shelter and security, your refuge. And again, that's for the, uh, the little ones. That's for the ones who are, who are not in the battle, in a sense, the non-combatants and one's family members who are not yet able to go and fight um, in this life. But secondly, the image that we get is of a fortress. A little bit different there, because this is something that's, that's planted in the midst of the battle, maybe on the battle lines. It's a place where you you fight from and you seek temporary shelter uh, just for arrest as a combatant. It protects the vulnerable from attack when your um, your armor's not on and when uh, you're waiting for the next fight. And that matches the shelter in verse 1 where the believers dwell in safety. Again, verses 1 and 2 support these ideas of security and provision. God the Most High, rising above all other high towers that set themselves against the believer, and God is also the Almighty, Almighty, who is the most powerful to deflect all threats and to shield the one he loves. Now, this is where it gets really personal. When the psalmist names God as my God in whom I trust, this is verse 2. Do you see how it's different there? Look at verse 1. He who dwells in the shelter of the Almighty. This is third person. This is, this is abstract truth. And then in verse two, I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God, in whom I trust. When that happens, a believer is confessing a true and yet really an imperfect reliance on God because when it comes down to it, no son of Adam and no daughter of Eve can, can profess that perfect kind of faith, right? We all have our fears. We all have our doubts. We all have our our rough moments. And so when we confess this kind of trust that says, I will do this, I will believe this, my shelter, my God, what we're really doing is we're confessing the ideal, what we hope for, what we aspire to, what we pray for. So when we put these two verses together, verses one and two, this is what I want us to see. Together, they form a personal confession of kingdom faith. Do you see it? It has the effect of drawing us closer to God, not because our faith is perfect, but because we have a rock solid, objective truth that we believe. And then we open our hearts to say, Lord, help my unbelief. I believe this stuff. I believe you. We make it personal because the theme verses help us to see and believe and confess that God is utterly trustworthy. Now, this is not obvious to the carnal mind. And the more you get out among the people, in a sense, uh, we get this every year when we go to the Boardwalk Chapel and we interact with, uh, with people um, who are walking by, vacationers and folks who are just there to have a good time. Some folks want to come up and talk to us and, and uh, answer the, the question of, are you certain you're going to heaven? Free test. And then you find out that they're a believer and you say, do you love the Lord? Do you trust in his word? Do you do you love the church and his people? Do you cry out? Do you call upon his name? And they say, yes, 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 yes. And you dig a little deeper, and they, and they do. And you say, praise the Lord together. And then you might get the young lady who walked by me just on Friday night. Pretty little girl who hissed at me like a serpent. <sighs> no, no, no. There's all different kinds out there. This truth that we've been talking about in verses 1 and 2 is not obvious to the carnal mind because the dwelling place is secret. It's secret. Known only to God and to those whom God reveals it. You see, everyone has access to the evidence of God's kingdom work, but not all have eyes to see it. Psalm 91, though, and as our brother Steve helped us to remember in his prayer, helps us to see and remember You can think of how Israel would have done this. And they do it an awful lot in books 4 and book 5 of the Psalter. As Israel remembered, for example, walking in the wilderness during the Exodus generation. Think about it. God really did provide all the protections promised in Psalm 91. Now, you might have read all that and and thought, it kind of sounds too good to be true. I mean, deliverance from all pestilence and diseases... I mean, can you really say that in 2021? Uh, The terrors of the night and all the mental health struggles that so many of us are having. Is that really true? Put yourself in the shoes of Israel during the Exodus generation. Every single one of these was fulfilled. Think about their taskmasters, their overlords who scourged them with whips and demanded impossible quotas. But God heard their cries. He heard them and visited his people because he remembered his covenant promise to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then there's the ten plagues of Egypt that what did not touch the children of Israel. It was like it rained on that side of the street and the sun shined on this side. Wow. Ten thousand fell at their side as Pharaoh's army drowned in the sea while Israel passed through the waters on dry land to the land of promise. Even though we've got much greater blessings to consider as uh, believers in the New Covenant, all the things that that Jesus and the Gospel tell us, the exodus, the the great redemptive event of the Old Testament, ought to be sufficient historical objective uh, in terms of a lesson for us to put our trust and hope in God as our mighty fortress from sickness and from sorrow and from pain. That's just the second book of the Bible. We have more than enough evidence to confess kingdom faith. Now, when you think about just confessing your faith, you might go, well, so what? What does that get me? Well, verses 3 through 13 in Psalm 91 list a number of different benefits of believing with kingdom faith. The first that I've tried to draw for us is deliverance from dangerous enemies. And it's kind of hard, actually, to, uh, to outline Psalm 91 because especially verses 3 through 13, they're kind of woven together as a tapestry, uh, they don't say, okay, first dangerous enemies, and then deadly pestilence, and then uh, the third one. No, they're all wound together. And so we kind of, kind of take them as, as, a, as separately, but recognize that they're all there in verses 3 through 10. Here's this, uh, this, this, uh, this phrase that I was speaking to, to the children, do not be afraid. It happens here again. It's not a guarantee that we'll escape all of our troubles. But what it does is it produces an expectation that God really, truly is good. There's a saying that our African brothers and sisters uh, say to each other all the time, God is good all the time? And the reply is, all the time, God is good. And I think they're onto something that the scripture is teaching. Look at verse 10. I think it provides a clue there for interpreting the psalm. What does verse 10 say? No evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. You see, the safety and the security described in Psalm 91 uh, refers to the experience of the faithful in a time of God's judgment, that the judgment can be physical dangers that surround you and threaten to undo you. For example, on the battlefield against the flying arrow, uh, the body shield is a pretty good defense, right? But the flying arrows, I think, because we're in poetry, because we're looking at a song, we're looking at something that's meant to be sung as God's people, are not merely to be applied to those who have seen battle action. We're talking about poetic language, which means we're talking about symbols. And so those flying arrows are also a symbol of life's trials that can cut a person down during the day, much less at night. Whether it's stray gunfire in a neighborhood or whether it's someone setting a trap to ruin someone else's name. Such fiery darts, I think we can admit, they really can do real damage. And then we draw out the symbolism, and one way or another, that terror of the night, it envisions God's people under attack when we are most fearful and most vulnerable. That's why Colton raised his hand real quick and said, I can tell you what I'm afraid of. I'm afraid of the dark. And you know what? If the lights go out, And the power goes out, I think that you're a little bit afraid of the dark too, aren't you? When the security system goes down and you no longer have the protections that are afforded to you, all of a sudden the cover of night provides protection in a sense for all the creepy crawlies out there, whether they be wild beasts or whether they be beastly people who are out to get us. The nighttime is a scary time. Whatever the enemy throws at you, though, do not fear for there is a fortress of safety. If you love God and flee to him for shelter, he will deliver you through many kind, different kinds of storms. Okay, that's, that's one of the main points I want you to get at. Okay? That's much the way that we experience life. I mean, not in separated silos, like this is the evil stuff over here, but this is the good stuff. It's, it's, it's all kind of mixed together as an assortment of overall good. That's what Psalm 91 is telling us. For the, for the child of God... We can say God is good all the time, all the time God is good, but a mixture really of danger and toil and snares and what we can call evil in there. I came across um, a quote from uh, the Bishop of Nigeria in the Anglican Communion. I've quoted him many times. I've got this great commentary called the Africa Bible Commentary, and it's great because life just seems like it's closer to what we read about in Bible times in Africa, You can ask Peggy Locker about some of the the real trials and struggles in a place where they know that God is real, they know that the devil is real, they know that bad guys and bandits really do exist, and they can come into your village and they can burn your house down. They know that, that disease and deadly pestilence are sometimes right around the corner, and you just live with it. This is what Cyril Okorocha wrote. We too face many dangers some of which are different from those the psalmist faced. We face dangers from diseases such as malaria, cancer, and AIDS, and from violent people, as well as danger in times of civil unrest, and everyday danger, just like traffic accidents. We also face spiritual dangers, he says, attacks by evil powers or evil people, and subtle temptations that try to lead us away from God and from a healthy way of life. And then he says, Christians through all the years and all over the world have been able to tell about how they have been kept safe in times of great danger, physical or spiritual. All of us have been protected by God in countless ways, even from our earliest days, and even when we have not realized it. You see, Bishop Okorocha has his finger on Psalm 91 when he's telling us that. He knows that there are dangers on every side, but there's no reason to fear because God is good. Now, there's a second benefit that comes from believing these truths about Psalm 91, and that benefit is immunity. Really, it does talk about immunity from deadly plague. God is present, I want you to know, and able to deliver his people from the entrapment, not only by enemies, but from deadly diseases. For example, such as bubonic plague, which back then and, and even in current times, I mean, the plague actually exists still in 2021 in certain parts of the world, which can be a problem there. It can be a problem during siege warfare when you get a whole bunch of unvaccinated and, and um, uh, people who are you know, living closely and, and, um, and, uh, and dirty and kind of unsanitary conditions. And the Bible, though, the pestilence or the plague, and they're, they're in a sense, uh, they're synonyms. And destruction, which you find in this, these verses also, are evident dangers. They're diseases that God sends on his enemies as punishment for our rebellion. Okay? So sometimes the Bible uses uh, plague and pestilence in a, in a more uh, metaphorical sense, uh, more broadly to include kind of any disaster that God inflicts with fatal consequences, so when you boil it down like that, biblically, pestilence or plague is a covenant curse. In other words, it's what God inflicts on his people when we are turning our backs on him and when we don't listen to him, when he stops our ears and we don't obey what he says. This is one way that God, in a sense, draws us back to help us to realize that we need to wake up and realize that we're not hot shots and we don't have everything under control. We live in a dangerous world and God is the one the only one who is our refuge. The terror of the night, I think we can talk about in terms of symbolism, may refer to that deadly disease, like a spiking fever that sweeps through a camp, uh, killing people while they, while they sleep, occasionally in epidemic proportions. I'm touching kind of close a nerve here with uh, some of the things that we've, we've struggled with um, this past year and a half or so. And I think here is another clue for interpreting the psalm. That safety and security that I keep on describing, described in Psalm 91, it refers to the experience of the faithful in a time of God's judgment on those all around them by a serious physical threat. Those who love God and flee to him for shelter are though saved and delivered through the storm, not from the storm, but through the storm. And here again is an interesting thing tidbit of uh, fascinating uh, truth that I found as I was studying this passage this past week. Many commenter- commentators uh, associate these pestilences that we've been talking about, literally, with, for example, COVID-19 and bubonic plague and things like that. They associate them with, you ready for this? Psalm 82, a few weeks ago? Demonic forces. Which here fits with the imagery of a plague that stalks its victim. And I know immediately some of you are saying, This is really weird. I mean, 2021, science. (laughs) And what I want to say to you is that, yes, we are scientific people. We recognize that science is able to understand uh, the way that diseases work very much nowadays. But all of that operates under the sovereignty of God. God is the one who who, uh, owns a cattle on a thousand hills. And God is the one that says all those particular um, uh, viral particles that we've been worried about that are all random every single one of those is under the control of God, so it flies on the path according to his will. Those same commentators talk about how in the darkness in which the plague lurks, uh, you have a translated Hebrew word, ofel, that can refer to the deep darkness of the underworld and to spiritual darkness. And then we have another Hebrew word, and again, you read this when when you study it. For pestilence and its synonym, plague, Rashef, that's often associated with the capital R word, Rashaf. And you know what that is? It's an ancient Near East god of pestilence, war, and the underworld. Now what does this all mean? It means that Psalm 91 is not equating demons and, and illness. It's not equating them, but it's relating them. It's linking them. This was so common in the ancient world as to be assumed and in the biblical worldview, all these evils, pestilence, war, the underworld, were thought as interrelated. That's why, by the way, which is where we're going with this, and you heard it a little bit in um, Pastor Todd's sermon a number of weeks ago, why it's so ironic and yet fitting that the devil used Psalm ninety-one to tempt Jesus in the wilderness. The same Psalm you might have noticed when I when I read it earlier, where the harsh realities of nature, of spiritual warfare, and the hordes. Of hell are all converging upon the Christ. That's the third benefit that we get from believing what this teaches about Psalm 91 victory over diabolical spirits. Look at verses 11 and 12. <clears throat> they sound familiar? Satan quoted these words in the wilderness to tempt Jesus to put God to the test. You remember that, and we know the story. Uh, Jesus resisted the temptation by uh, quoting Deuteronomy. Um, combating the devil's uh, twisting of Psalm 91 with other words from God. And what Jesus was showing us, among other things, is that genuine trust in God does, uh, does not put him to the test by demanding that God prove himself. In other words, real test, kingdom faith, kingdom trust, from a kingdom perspective, rests in God's divine care. So victory over the forces of darkness is not merely in what you trust, but it's in who you trust so psalm 91 is not some magic talisman it's not a, a magic bible verse that you can use you know put it on a card and hold it up to the vampires in your life like that no it's in who you trust kingdom faith gains that victory because kingdom faith trusts in a god who gives the victory so we have deliverance and immunity and victory Deliverance, immunity, victory. Deliverance, immunity, victory. What in the world do these look like in our lives? Well, verse 12, it makes it look like the believer's feet hardly touch the ground as angels carry him away from danger. But verse 13, I think it is, yes, emphasizes actually walking on those hazards without suffering mishaps. And it uses the, the image of the lion and the cobra, the lion and the adder. And you know that these are apt images that the New Testament uses for the devil the devil like a roaring lion prowls around seeking who he may devour right? and then obviously the serpent we don't have to to illustrate that one in the Bible there are historical accounts of God protecting believers from lions and snakes and by the way kids and anybody who's not catching my drift here this doesn't mean that we should go off and do snake handling okay? I had a classmate in seminary who said that he left a church in West Virginia where they were still doing that. Whew! Don't go and handle poisonous snakes. Don't tempt and test God. Don't go around sticking your head in a lion's uh, mouth like a lion tamer, like what I wanted to do when I was growing up. That's not what the Bible is teaching us here. But what it's teaching us is God is still protecting us. Now, if you stop and consider about how God protects us, you can think of ways that he's protected you. I think of uh, years ago when I was uh, hiking in the Grand Canyon, and then the sun went down. And you started to hear all the crickets and the ssss and the roars and all the creepy crawlies come out. And as we were hiking out of the canyon, the, the lead in my group stepped on a rattlesnake. And we knew it was a rattlesnake because you could hear the rattle as he scurried off. And statistically speaking, I was the last one in the group of three. I should have gotten bitten, venom coursing through my veins. But it didn't happen. God was merciful. Or then I can think of the time when I was uh, with a group of friends walking in the dark at night, and we were searching for um, a cave entrance that was uh, well-traveled back in the woods. And all of a sudden, we heard a shot ring out, and the dogs got released. And we froze, not moving a muscle, cursing ourselves, realizing that we had nobody but our stupid trespassing selves to blame, and we were going to die right then. And we waited for an eternity, like way longer than this. And the dogs didn't find us. And no one got shot. God was merciful. And then to bring it home, I mean, all of us know someone who either got COVID, maybe some, a few people in this room did, or someone who passed away from COVID. But I don't think this is disrespectful to consider God's blessings. Out of the membership in this body, only one of us succumbed to COVID, Madge Eicher. And she had lived a long, fruitful, blessed life, and she was ready to go. And so her gain was our loss. God protected this body from pestilence. God really does protect his people. He really is a refuge in a time of trouble. And so we ought to believe him and rejoice that he's still protecting his people. So fear not Beloved, God is with you. It's not just a bunch of nice words. No. And yet, if pestilence from the grave still captures you in its tentacles, if the error finds the chink in your armor, if the forces of darkness devour your faith all the way down to the bone, still do not fear, because such are the ways of the fallen world, but the kingdom of heaven is not so. The dangers and the threats are real in this world, but Jesus Christ indeed has overcome the world. Think about how he has done so. By his fearless faith and unflappable obedience, Jesus resisted those temptations of the devil while he was hungry and thirsty and alone. In the Garden of Gethsemane, when the sun went down and everything became really scary as he faced down the cross and, and the face of death and the hand of God upon sin that he was taking upon himself... He faced down his fears. But by dwelling in the protective shadow of the Almighty God, Jesus exposed himself to all of that manner of disease, for example, when he went about healing people and touching them because the pestilence was no match for his holy power. He snatched the dead out of the grave because Jesus is no match, or I'm sorry, death is no match for Jesus. And he did it, think about it, all for others, but not for himself. He had people standing at the cross saying, he saved others, cannot he save themselves? If you are the son of God, come down off that cross right now, show us. And yet Jesus stayed. Jesus let that fear fall upon him. My God, my God, why why have you forsaken me? And then he died, fearful, but faithful. Why did he do that? Because by relinquishing the benefits of the kingdom, of kingdom faith, the sinless Holy Savior could take the loss of all those things that we might win by faith in his ultimate victory over the enemy's attacks, over nature's plagues, and of Satan's wiles. Think about it. While Jesus was nailed to the cross, the fowler's trap closed in on him. When Jesus hung on the cross, the pestilence of death overwhelmed him. And when Jesus breathed his last on the cross, the angel of death slew him. But on that third day, When Jesus Christ, the Son of God, burst forth from the tomb in resurrection life, and I can hear you already laughing hysterically because you have that terrible, terrible thing that's about to come down into your lap, but you're having that kingdom perspective now. He destroyed the hunter's snare so that sin can no longer entrap us. He removed the sting of death so that sin can no longer kill us. And he looked into the eyes of Satan and saw the promised recompense of the wicked so that sin can no longer strike fear. In us. In the kingdom, beloved, all is forgiven, all is secure, and all is at rest. That is the salvation that Jesus accomplished because he loves you. The Bible says perfect love casts off all fear. So consider these glorious, unbeatable benefits of kingdom faith to gain that kingdom perspective on your fears that cannot be shaken and I've got to go really quick through the third point, the confirmation of kingdom faith, verses 14 and 15, because, and again, this is God's response here. Look in your, in your translation. You probably have quotation marks at the beginning of verse 14 and at the close of verse 16, because verses 1 and 2 gives us the theme of, of the, the, the psalm, objective truth, subjective trust. Then you have the psalmist talking to us in verses 3 through 13, and then here in the last three verses, you have God speaking to you. Do you see it? These are God's words. He says, because he holds fast to me in faith and he calls him by name, therefore I will save him. What's going on here is um, a work of the will, of the heart, and um, your mind. Uh, with first, with your mind, you must know God's name. The Old Testament says his name is Yahweh, and for the New Testament, it's made easy for us. It's Jesus. Jesus. You have to know who you're calling upon because that's the next thing you need to do with your will. You have to decide that you're going to call on the name of the Lord, call on him for the forgiveness of sins, call on him for a new heart, call on him that you might have a new and holy life, that you can walk before him in righteousness and in blamelessness, thanking him for the salvation he's won for you. Call on his name as an act of the will, on the Lord Jesus as the one mediator between God and man for all these things. And third, with your heart. Hold fast to God in love. Hold fast. So if your heart has any love at all for Jesus, then muster all of that affection and hold on tightly in love and in loyalty and in trust to the Savior. Because he loves you so, he will hold you fast. Even when your love is weak, even when you feel like you can't hold on and you let go, God is still holding you. You're in the shadow of his wings. His strength is so great that in verse 1, it calls him the Almighty. And so if you know this Jesus as Lord, and you call out to him for salvation, and you hold fast to that confession in love, then what God says in these verses is that he sees you, and he confirms that you have kingdom faith. Not that you have perfect faith. Not that you have a faith that's, that's, that's ideal and that's done forming. But you indeed have a kingdom faith. And what will he do in verse 16? I will satisfy him with long life and show him my salvation. You might say, did God really promise all these benefits? Or are they just pious words of wishful thinking dreamed up by those believers who thought they were um, seeing God at the distance and what he might actually be like if he was close? For you doubters, I want you to consider how the voice in verses 14 through 16 is not the psalmist, but it's God himself. All the longings of the psalmist in verses 3 through 13 are stamped with the divine approval at the end of Psalm 91. It's as if God is saying to you, yes and amen. You can count on me because I love you and because of Jesus. So cast off those doubts, beloved, and drink deeply of God's salvation until you're satisfied. And when you doubt again, drink again. Drink again of kingdom faith. (laughs) Don't just sip. <laughs> Drink deeply to regain that necessary kingdom perspective. So let us leave on a note of hope, all right? Even greater hope. <clears throat> In this introductory uh, series on the Psalter, we've gone all the way back to October, we've surveyed a select few Psalms. Some of them are very beloved and famous, like Psalm 23. You can find all these on the internet, by the way, if you're visiting. We've, We've been through many of them. Others are important pillars that structurally help us to understand the flow of the Psalms, like Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. We talked about how Psalms are a book of five books. And the first four books reveal that overarching movement as God's kingdom people first confront their adversaries. That's verse one. I'm sorry, book one. Then we communicate God's word and his law and his, God's gospel in the message of his kingdom Messiah to the nations. That's book two. And then book three, ugh, we didn't spend too much time there, thankfully. That's when our hopes of God's glorious kingdom are elevated and then dashed in exile But then in Book Four, introduced by Psalm 90 and 91, we believers grow in maturity. We grow spiritually as we face our fears. We seek refuge from dangers and we deal with our disappointments with the kingdom that's here now, but is not completely here yet in its fullness. And so, what do we do? We rest in the promise of the gospel of Christ's kingdom, looking at the real and tangible benefits of the kingdom now and the kingdom come. And I told myself I wasn't going to cry. Book four is where we had to pause. In God's plan, it's not for me to take you into book five, where the hopes of God's kingdom consummated, that's the theme of book five, are glimpsed on the near horizon, and yet they're tasted even now. Perhaps someday your new pastor will take you into survey Book Five. But no one except Jesus can usher you into that kingdom, if you know what I mean. It's a secret place, open only to those who know Jesus is the gateway to God's kingdom. It's open only to those who dwell by faith in the shadow of the Almighty, the Almighty Lord Jesus. But even so, I hope you'll read ahead into Book Five, and what you'll find among other place things, are the psalms of ascent. Those are the psalms that pilgrims, as they come together from various places around God's kingdom, converge just before they get to Mount Zion, the Jerusalem. And they see it on the horizon as a shining city. And by faith, they can see through that Jerusalem, the earthly Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem, and those pilgrims together, as they make their way into the city of God, the celestial city, begin to sing those psalms of ascent together by faith. They've been apart, exiled, if you were, the diaspora, but they come together again in God's providence and in God's timing to sing those psalms together as they ascend to the beautiful city of God. Because when we, asc- we ascend to the summit of the heavenly Mount Zion, where we will all be reunited in the beautiful city, where the Lord Jesus reigns right now and reigns forevermore, then we're all going to sing together those climactic psalms when you read all the way to the end, Psalms 146 through 50, where every single one begins with the word hallelujah. And all God's people said, amen. 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 Let's pray. Father, you have been so, so good to us. We have nothing to fear and we have every reason to trust. You've poured out on us so many kingdom benefits so that even when we are humbled, you give us that kingdom perspective that we can see that all is good because you love us. Help us, Father, to live in a sense not just at the pause of book four, but to keep on pressing on to book five, and to the times when we can sing hallelujah, praise the Lord together again forever. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.